0: Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with our friend Toby Carlisle, value investor, author, and founder of The Acquires Funds. We talk to Toby about the current state of value stocks in today's market, how quality factors come into play with value investing, selecting stocks using one of Toby's favorite metrics, The Acquires Multiple, value stocks and interest rates and inflation, and much more. Toby is super smart when it comes to value investing, and we couldn't have thought of a better guest to have on. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Toby Carlisle of The Acquires Funds. Hey, Toby. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, fellas. Good to see you. Jack and I were uh, talking before we jumped on here and, you know, you have kind of an impressive resume. I mean, you've written at least, I don't know, three or four books on value investing. You've spoken to Google about value investing. You rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange, but probably the biggest career accomplishment is um, the third time guest appearance on uh, excess returns. What do you think? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah i agree i couldn't agree more
2: you're you're our first three-time guest so uh, i'm sure it's a huge career honor for you
0: <laughs> i'm honored
1: i'm deeply honored he, he, he can't say no no i love chatting to you guys
0: well we just want to say too it was really awesome um going down to the my scene with you and and uh you know experiencing that whole thing and, and meeting meeting your family and just uh that was that was really really cool and i got to do that with you so thank you for for having us
1: My pleasure. I wanted to have you guys there because he was so instrumental in getting my whole operation launched. I couldn't have done it without you. Like I, 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 I I didn't really know how to do it until Justin sort of explained to me how you guys had done it. So I, I thank you very much for that.
0: And just so people that, uh, know what Toby's talking about, he has a, actually a few ETFs now that he's either managing or sub advising. And so when we had our ETF, um, we sort of helped Toby along in terms of, you know, understanding the ins and outs of actually launching a, an ETF, which was, which is really cool.
1: The service providers. Yeah.
0: So we wanted to have you back on Toby, just to talk, we always seem to talk to you about, which is sort of value investing in valuing stocks. And, um, you know, it's been an interesting sort of time for value. We obviously went through a really long period where value was underperforming, like two, two, you know, started really in 07, but when we saw some bouts of outperformance, but then really from 2011 through like early 2020, you had, you know, pretty dramatic underperformance of value versus, you know, let's say your typical growth stock. Um, but then we kind of started to see some reversion, which was nice. I think a lot of value investors sort of thought that value was going to make a nice, long, big comeback. Um, then we had inflation sort of, sort of start to take up pretty materially and affect with rates. And and sort of that whole i think a lot of people thought too that was going to be good for value and at least lately it's sort of cooled off a little bit in terms of value stocks um performing or outperforming so we just kind of want to start there just sort of get your thoughts on uh, you know w- where we are in terms of value versus growth and and sort of what your outlook is and what you're thinking right now
1: well yeah that's my favorite topic as as you guys know the um the underperformance of value had sort of reached this historic point, which is kind of amazing because the same thing happened in the late nineteen nineties um, when the dot com bubble one point was right in its uh, ascendancy at the very peak of the boom before it came off. That was the worst underperformance of value to that point, and since then, um, value has underperformed again. Beginning, as you say, it depends on how you measure it, but either 2007 or 2010, certainly, and then probably the growth year end of value kept on working until sort of 2018, maybe, but from 2018, there was really nowhere to hide. And I think um, there's a gentleman by the name of Mikhail Samanov who who wrote this paper called uh, looking at 200 years of stock market history using the value factor, which is price-to-book and and he found that it was the worst underperformance of value over that period of time. So, we really did live through interesting times as the, the Chinese curse has it. Um, what happened last time this occurred was there was a great run for value out of that bottom. And it, it hasn't manifest yet. There was this very brief kind of spurt from court, Q. The end of q3 or the beginning of q4 in 2020 and it lasted until about the end of q2 in 2021 which is not very long at all sort of six months or something like that uh and since then values sort of started sucking wind again and it doesn't matter whether you compare it to the most expensive stocks in the market um you know what what the academics call the growth stocks but we know that they're not they're not really high growth it's just they're expensive and that implies high growth to justify that valuation or if you compare it to the market itself um Wes Gray's uh Alpha Architect tracks that on his website for free you can check the the different value spreads there and it's as of July 31 um, which is the last data point that they have it was wider than in 2000 at the peak or 2009 at the trough which were both good times to be a value investor and it's it's the only the only data point that was wider was the June 30 so it's 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 materially wider than in 2000 or in in 2009 and it does seem to have closed a tiny bit since I mean it hasn't got worse it's it's got slightly better since sort of June 30 so at some point, if you believe in mean reversion, which is this idea that things do sort of go back to, to normal eventually over a long enough timescale, value should start working. Um, but we sort of really haven't seen it yet and we're, we're taking it as a little bit of an article of faith that that will occur. The only thing that I would say is that the value under performance does manifest in those metrics that show the spread is getting wider, which if the spread wasn't getting wider and value is just underperforming, then you would have no, uh, nothing to suggest that the spread tightening would lead to some outperformance. But that, that should be the case because we can see in, in sort of graphical terms or in statistical terms that the underperformance is as a result of this, just valuations diverging, not not any sort of unusual underperformance of the, the the companies in the portfolio and if anything the companies in the in the value portfolio relative to the market and the the growth year end are like they were at the beginning of the 2000s they are now higher quality
0: yeah that's that's one of the sort of questions i think or things that a lot of investors that experience that 99 and 2000 period sort of ask themselves or wrestle with it's like Back then, you had all these super expensive growth stocks, but there was no good sort of sound fundamental business in there. Today, within the growth stock category, you have sort of high quality growth, the mega maybe names, which are still growing quite nicely. And then you have sort of the second tier growth type companies, which really are businesses yet. They're not profitable. They're not making money. The businesses are, you know, being valued what, way out in the future and who knows what's going to happen. But how do you how do you think about those two periods when you kind of compare contrasts? Is there is do you see sort of similarities and differences?
1: Cliff Asness, who's the the founder of AQR or one of the founders of AQR, but the face of AQR, looked at in the in, in the in the sort of the depths of the value under performance. He looked at the performance of companies relative to their own fundamentals, and he found that most most of the time companies do sort of perform in line with their fundamentals Com- cheaper companies do better better quality companies do better but in 99 and 2000 it was the reverse the uglier the fundamental picture for a company and the more expensive the better they did it just sort of inverted which is what happens in manias the narrative overwhelms the fundamental story the same thing happened in 19- uh, 2019 and 2020 just this um you know, amazing sort of echo of what had occurred in 99 and 2000 that they did in fact reverse like 20 years later, almost, you know, to the day. And since then they have sort of gone back to being a little bit more tightly tied to their fundamentals. But as you point out, the the, the difference seems to be that the the index these days is a much higher quality, this the the S&P 500, is a much higher quality beast than it has been in the past in 99, 2000, the bigger names or what has happened historically is that the biggest names have been names like Exxon, which is, you know, basically selling a commodity, drilling a commodity out of the ground and selling it. So it's subject to the whims of that commodities pricing market. And so it tends to be the biggest company in the world when oil's doing very well. And then it gets overbought relative to that, the multiple expands relative to that um, commodity and then that always reverses the commodity falls and the, the, the multiple drops as well. And so the, the index has usually been uh, a worse bet than value itself. Now we've got this funny situation where the very biggest companies in the world, Google, Microsoft, um, Amazon, you know, the whatever, the it used to be Fang, then it was FanMag fat man there's a variety of different acronyms that depending on who's sort of in that top 10 or so but the top 10 stocks are unusually occupy an unusually large weight in the index right now they're bigger than they have been in the past relative to the rest of the index and they're quite profitable and sustainably so those google's got a great business microsoft's got a great business it's all recurring revenue and they haven't been sort of exceptionally expensive they are probably rich for a value investor but not egregiously so they're not like uh, they're not the crazy sort of multiples that we saw in in the dot com boom or in any other sort of boom before then so the question has been are you just better off buying the index rather than trying to you know we all you can you can buy the index and you'll achieve index performance if you if you deviate from the index by adding some tilt like quality or value or momentum or whatever the case may be. The reason that you do that is that you think that you can get some additional returns. And those returns really haven't manifest. So there's been no argument for doing it. But I do think that the the, the composition of the value portfolios has now got to the point where they are higher quality, They they are earning higher returns on invested capital. And there was a good um, paper by Kochu the firm where they pointed out the, the parallels between now and 99, 2000. And they said, uh, there was basically they, they described three categories of stocks. There's profitless tech, um, which is the thing that participates most in the run-up and that might be characterized by Kathy Wood's arc. The companies that she tends to ho- hold aren't companies that have delivered any performance fundamentally, they're they're the argument is that they're, they're spending money to win their niche and at some point they will be successful and earn excess returns because they've dominated their niche and no one else can compete with them. Um, that's the argument. Whether that actually occurs or not remains to be seen and possibly that the expectations embedded in them are now so op- or, or were so optimistic at the peak that it's impossible for them to do that. Kochu said in 1999-2000 that profitless tech was down 90% before the rest of the market started its sort of swoon and when, that, when the rest of the market hap, fell into its crash as well, those profitless tech companies were down an additional 80%. So they were down, they were basically uninvestable at all stages through there. This, the other group was the um, profitable tech, which is the Googles and the Microsofts and a lot of the rest of the market and they did eventually recover but they didn't ever reach that same level of overvaluation and then the rest of the market eventually fell alongside them so i think we've seen that i think we've seen profitless tech has fallen over um and so that's the arc type companies i think we've seen the rest of the market follow since the start of this year and then if this is in fact a sort of um a mega bear you know like a 99 2000 or a 2007 2009 style mega bear you would expect that the final third of the sell-off would occur sort of some any time really from now until uh you know if you, if if the average bear market is 18 months to 2 years if you started from the start of the year then it would start any time from now and end any time sort of in the end of 2023 the end of next year so i sort of expect at some point over the next 18 months one year to 18 months we'll see some some um some action or not
0: your uh your ears might have been ringing recently because in one of our emails that we pushed out to our um, blog subscribers, I highlighted the acquires multiple model that we run on Validia based on your book. So one of the things that we do here is we look for strategies that have been written about in the public domain and that have been tested over long periods of time. And if they can be quantified, we like to run those strategies and track those strategies. Well, it just so happened that one of those, and we have a lot of, our, our, our private client base tends to be a lot of, you know, value-oriented type investors. But one of the guys that I consider the deep, one of the deepest value-oriented uh, clients we have got the email. And when he saw the stocks that were being selected by the acquirer's multiple, he's like, that's the portfolio I want. <laughs> he's like, that's the one. And by the way, anyone that's uh, interested in this, definitely research Toby's uh, ETFs. not not the Validia, uh, website. I'll do both. <laughs> I want to ask you, um, kind of switching to investment strategy, uh, a little bit value investing, um, specifically, could you just kind of talk about what goes into the acquirer's multiple and sort of what, you know, how, how you define it?
1: Well, the acquirer's multiple is very, very, so very, very simple. And there are good reasons why you should look at the Validia, um, model portfolios and the ETF, the ETF has constraints on it that model portfolios and individual investors do not have on them. I have to buy a certain size of stock with a certain amount of liquidity and I have to do other things in the ETF that uh, are necessary for a public uh, fund that an individual investor doesn't have to do. So I would expect that the performance of the uh, Validia portfolios will be better than the performance of the ETFs. The, 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 um, the advantage of the ETF is that it is very tax efficient and there's somebody else managing it for you so you don't have to worry about the rebalancing, which is anybody who's run one of these strategies and you guys will know that the rebalancing is it's a pain and it's time-consuming and it's it's fiddly and there's a little bit more art to it than there is pure science. So sometimes you have companies that one is in the portfolio and it's it's slightly more expensive than another one that's outside. But once you trade the two, then you might be losing any advantage. So you have to make these little decisions. But the, the strategy itself is very, very simple. It looks for these companies that are cheap on an acquirer's multiple basis. So the acquirer's multiple for people who don't know is the metric itself is basically operating income. But you, you might think of the, that would either be EBIT or EBITDA, are, are well known examples of that. So that's earnings before interest and tax, earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization, which is basically the accounting version of cash flow that goes into a that that management gets, that they then decide what they how they direct that. And they can direct that in various different ways. They can use it to pay down debt. They can use it uh, in CapEx, they can use it to buy other companies, they can use it to buy back stock. And then the way that you determine whether it is cheap or expensive is you compare it to the enterprise value. So the enterprise value is the market capitalization. So if you think about your house, you own your house and you pay um, you pay $100,000 for your house, but you have a $80,000 mortgage on your house. So the market capitalization of your house is $20,000 and it doesn't reflect the mortgage that you have. That is an amount that is a real uh, liability that you have to pay off over time. And so uh, the, the enterprise value captures that that debt number and it captures other things that are debt-like, quasi-debt, so preference shares have a requirement that often that they have some sort of dividend that is pre- preferred to the to the common, so it has to be paid out before the common can receive its dividend. There might be minority interest, so somebody else might own a piece of the the house and that needs to be reflected. In some circumstances, you might find that the house has a safe inside it and there's some cash in that safe and so the the actual cost of your house is much, much lower than it appears on the outside because you find the safe and it's got $100,000 in it. So the real cost of your house is zero because you could take that cash and, and pay off the house. And that's essentially what the enterprise value is. We're looking for companies that have got more cash than debt or or they they don't have any of these hidden parts. And then we compare the two together so we can get an apples to apples comparison of all of the companies in the market. Now that sounds like a very simple, it is a very simple metric compared to the full analysis that other investors do, but it's also a very powerful one because it does contain a lot of information in it. Um, And when we test that idea relative to other simple metrics like price to earnings or price to book or free cash flow to enterprise value we find that it performs has performed the best over the data set that we have which is 1963 to sort of to date Um, but there are long periods of underperformance and there are multiple periods through the the long series of data that we have where we've had these well-known manias well-known bull markets and there are about six or seven through the whole data set um, where value does really badly we're being where we're we're sort of looking for these flows isn't helpful at all so it's it's a it's a it's a very long term strategy um and it's money that you shouldn't need in the next sort of f- three to five years that you can put into a strategy like this so that um you can give these companies enough time to for the market to sort of forget about the reasons why they're undervalued in the first place and to start valuing them again on their fundamentals, which Benjamin Graham would have said. You know, in the short term, the market is a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And so that's what we're trying to buy these things when the market's voting against them and have them eventually weighed on their, on, on their merits. And that's value investing.
2: How do you think about the idea of using something like the acquirer's multiples, an individual metric or putting it together with other metrics into a composite? You know, what do you think the pros and cons are of those two approaches?
1: It becomes more complex. But anytime you add more information, provided that it's, it's information that is predictive, you should get... Better returns, and there's also because of the nature of value, the way that it performs and it outperforms. When you add in things like quality, a quality metric which might perform at a different time or 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 underperform at a different time, and you can do other things like you get in momentum, you can do anything really that you want with it to to come up with a return stream, a return profile that it's likely or that it has delivered in the past and probably will continue to do in the future. Um, It you can add, I don't want to say alpha, but you can add return, add alpha. So I think that there are very good reasons for doing that. Um, you just have to, you have to have access to the testing. You I know that you guys can do it quite simply and you can see that any other metrics that do that, there's no, there's no free uh, lunch in the markets. There are trade-offs for everything. So you just have to understand what you're doing and, and what you're adding to the strategy to to deliver that performance or you know you can smooth your returns um you can magnify your returns you can move your returns around from the beginning of the business cycle to the end of the business cycle but there's really no way to to sustainably outperform without taking that there's a trade-off at every point
2: yeah it's interesting you know i I was always a believer in a composite you know just the idea that if one metric's not working the other ones would but when we had wes gray on the podcast you know he kind of explained that you know when you start with price to book, price to book has such a negative loading on quality, and a lot of the other earnings based metrics you know like yours will have a positive loading on quality. so a lot of that benefit of a composite comes from starting with price to book and getting rid of that negative quality and so I'm not as much of a believer in you have to have a composite as I once was now that I understand behind the scenes what's going on
1: i, I that's 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 basic that's exactly what I would agree with at one hundred percent that's that's essentially that i mean this I, I I see it in in the way that uh, the acquirer's multiple performs in the way EV EBIT performs. Like right now, we know that energy is doing really well, but because the nature of reporting is that it's backward looking, it takes a little while for those flows to show up in an EV EBIT type analysis, and so they don't really start buying these companies until uh, a period of time—a quarter or or, or a year—after they start delivering those flows, even though they might be cheap. So. You know, on the other hand, price to book might be a very good way of identifying undervalued energy companies, because when they were, whenever it was sort of late 2020, when, when oil went negative, they all became unusually cheap on a price to book basis. And so that would have been a good time to buy energy in retrospect. But my metric wasn't picking that up because they weren't flowing. They were, they were still, um, you know, they were losing money on, a, <laughs> on an EBIT basis.
2: What do you think about? You know, we kind of talked about the idea of combining value and quality, and that's something you looked at in, uh, I believe it was quantitative value, where you looked at Greenblatt's strategy and you looked at sort of both together and then just separating value apart. Like, what do you think about the idea of, you know, what are the benefits of adding quality to value and what are maybe some of the drawbacks of it?
1: The benefit is sort of, as I articulated before, that if you go through a 99 2000 type scenario or not 2019 2020 type scenario, the quality factor does help you keep up with the market a little bit because those companies, Have earnings, and to the extent that investors aren't participating in the full blown mania, they will also pay up for these sort of companies. Whereas value doesn't really seem to participate much through that period. The downside is that over the full data set, the best returns have been to the cheapest of the cheap rather than, and this is what we found in quantitative value, rather than to the ones that are a blend of both. But the, the, the the returns to that cheap value portfolio are—they're hard to—they're hard to ride. they are they they are up a lot and they're down a lot, and it's difficult. Nobody goes in when they're down a lot, which is you know probably the best time to be in there because the, what follows is they tend to be up a lot. But they're so volatile that it's hard to invest in them. Whereas adding quality sort of smooths those returns. You give up some return to do it. There's a great line from Munger and and Buffett where they say I'd rather a a lumpy 15% to a smooth 12%. And that might be true for those guys, but there aren't many other investors out there who are like that. Most people, it turns out, prefer that smooth 12 to the lumpy 15.
2: And, and when you saw in, in testing Greenblatt's strategy that it worked better with just value alone without the quality, is, is a big part of that what he was using to define quality? So the idea that return on capital is mean reverting? So is, is it maybe the way we define quality? If we define it differently, we might get a different result.
1: Right. And so that my, my definition of quality is not so much what it's earning on its assets, because that does tend to identify companies closer to the peak of their business cycle than than closer to the, the trough. I prefer other other metrics like the, the extent to which it converts its earnings into cash flow, balance sheet quality. Are they accruing unusual? Is there an unusual asset accruing on the on the balance sheet that might suggest that there's some sort of manipulation of earnings or there are a lot of different ways that you can define quality there's no i think that maybe the aqr paper uh quality minus junk which came out in about 2012 or 2016 i forget now exactly when it came out but that's that's a that's a pretty good look at the various different individual metrics and and they're in concert how they how they behave um, but in there, there's still this idea of return on equity, return on capital. That's one of the metrics that they use, and that does seem to be that's to, that's to get you into businesses that are better quality businesses rather than there are companies that just don't ever earn enough money to justify their existence, and they always trade at a giant discount. Uh, and so the argument might be, well, you'll be out of those companies, and you'll be into slightly better businesses that over time will earn more even though that's not really borne out in the, in the data. The narrative sounds good though.
2: Quality is one of the hardest things for me. You know, whenever I see like the smartest investors I know and they define the same thing very differently, it says to me that they're, it probably is a pretty tricky thing and there's probably no one way to define it. And so I think that is definitely the case with quality. Like some of the greatest investors define quality in totally different ways.
1: All of the, best, all of the famous investors will tell you that you should buy, they all, have, they all say you should buy high quality businesses. Um, but their definitions of them are all different. And it's not something that you can quantify very easily and, and generate good returns doing. Having said that, you know, I have tried to do it a little bit too, so that it works with my acquirer's multiple. So I do try to buy slightly higher quality businesses out of, that, out of the junk pile, but it remains to be seen whether that's uh, something that works, in, in, works forward rather than only in backtest.
2: This, this idea of quality being hard to, find, to define sort of gets at what I wanted to ask you about next, because we're pure value, quantitative value investors. But I know you have sort of both aspects to your process. You have a quantitative aspect to your process, but you also have a discretionary aspect to your process. And I'm somewhat wondering a little bit if you could talk about where in value you think discretionary investing works well and where you think quantitative investing works well.
1: I think that – I think to some extent it's a, it's a personality. If – there are, there are some people who are able to tune out the external world completely and be very concentrated into companies and be completely comfortable writing them for long periods of time. For most people, that's very hard to do because it's hard to underperform by very, very wide margins that you can underperform by 60, 70, 80% and still not have made the wrong decision because ultimately the quality will catch up. It's just hard to justify that to people who aren't in the market and who aren't seeing those things. Because you can look at how far behind Berkshire Hathaway got behind, say, ARK over the period of ARK's sort of um, big ball run. And then you can see how rapidly it caught up as a pretty good argument for why value is ultimately the better place to be. And now since ARK's inception, Berkshire Hathaway is outperforming, even though at one point it was underperforming by the tune of 60 or 70%. And that was when all of the articles were written, the covers of Business Week, where they say, "Has Buffett lost his touch?" The same thing that gets written about every ten or twenty years about Buffett losing his touch, and then ultimately, he's shown to be he's shown to be right. To the extent that I use discretionary, uh, I I like. I was a lawyer in a in a past life. I was a corporate lawyer. I did a lot of acquisitions. Um, part of what a lawyer does in acquisitions is doing diligence on a company, and that's um to make sure they own what they say that they own do they have off balance sheet liabilities all those sort of things so i use that process to make sure that there are things that the quantitative process is capturing does the do the do the financial statements reflect the economic reality of the business and to the extent that they do then um I, i buy them and to the extent that they don't then I avoid them. And there are, there are lots of unusual business models out there from insurance to banking, um, to, to companies that generate float. There, there are lots of ways that, f- you know, financial statements are an imperfect expression of what happens in the business. And so I think that uh, I, can, I use it more to avoid liabilities that aren't otherwise captured in the financial statements rather than to try to outperform uh, to find things that are, 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 you know, to reach up and grab something that shouldn't be in there rather than, uh, t- so I'm trying, I'm trying to pick out the things that, that have liabilities that wouldn't otherwise that any sort of sensible person, that if you could, if you could uh, get it into the quantitative system, you would, but you just, you just aren't able to do that. But having said that it's hard to test that idea. And so it's possible that that is hurting returns.
2: I actually wanted to ask you about portfolio sizing next. And and I wanted to ask you about that in in the context of this whole discretionary versus quantitative thing, because I'm wondering if, because you have this discretionary overlay and because you have a little more confidence in the companies, does that make you willing to go a little smaller on the position sizing than you would if you had sort of an overall just quantitative approach?
1: Yeah. So I I think that quantitative portfolios tend to be very large, They're, they're hundreds of stocks to sometimes a thousand stocks, whereas it's your, uh, disc- the discretionary seems to be able to become more concentrated by picking out the things that are losers. So I think of, I think of uh, quantitative investing as sort of trawling, just putting a big net out be- behind the boat. And when you pull that up, you get a lot of boat trash. You get stuff that you wouldn't otherwise, otherwise eat. Although, you know, I love the boat trash deep fry that. And that's, that's my favorite part, <laughs> but, but it's not like fishing with a line where, you know, you, you, you hope that you get the fish that you want and you pull it in and you can inspect it and throw it back if it's wrong. So I, I think that that's the advantage, but I do think that there, there there's a lot to recommend both. And to the extent that I can, I try to get both of the best aspects into the portfolio. So the idea is that um, quantita- quants have this advantage of their, uh, their, their, their investment strategy doesn't change with the performance of the market, or how they feel, they're always executing the same strategy, and that seems to be one of the keys to outperforming. That even when your strategy is underperforming, you keep on doing consistently what you should always do, and ultimately, that wins out. But uh, the the discretionary the the, the discretionary uh, risk management stuff that that Buffett and Munger would describe would say, you know, buy buy companies that are generating some cash flow that can that can buy back stock, that have good managers. Those are things that are difficult to quantify. Graham would have said that looking for good management is double counting. Good management should turn up in the financial statements. You you should be able to see that they've got good cash flow conversion, good returns on equity and so on. And if you're then buying companies on that basis and then going and saying, well, management's really good. Like, no kidding, like good management delivers good results in the business and good management is not, you can't separate it out. Even if they say all the right things, ultimately it has to be reflected in the, in, the, in the financial statements of the business. So I try to use a little bit of both. Um, I, as I say, it still remains to be seen whether that's a, a worthwhile approach or not. I certainly hope that it is. I think that it is, but I don't know.
2: How do you think about the idea of uh, sector concentration? You know, That's been a big debate among value investors. You, know, you have some investors who say, all right, financials are really cheap. I'll put a lot of my portfolio in financials. And you have others like AQR is one of them who says, you know, let's start with the weighting of the market and let's select value stocks within that weighting and try to keep, you know, try not to make these big bets on sectors. How do you think about that when you build your portfolios?
1: Yeah, this has been a, when, when we wrote quantitative value, what we found was that that sector concentration was necessary for the outperformance, but that's a double-edged sword. And what can happen, and I think what did happen to a lot of value portfolios over the last decade or so, is that it, it became more of a sector bet rather than a um, rather than a value bet, so the value portfolios tended to be concentrated in energy and financials, and energy and financials have had a horror run for the last decade, whereas the uh the higher quality or the growth investors tended to be in tech, which was just expensive and and didn't meet any of the traditional value metrics and so uh the underperformance value was as much a concentration in a bad sector as it was uh, buying the undervalued companies. But AQR, which does sort of immunize their portfolios against that by being long and short, the best and worst names in the same industry or the same sector, still suffered from the same underperformance. So there clearly was this preference for expensive stocks over, over cheap stocks in AQR's portfolios So It's one of those things that I don't think the debate is, is solvable i don't think it's soluble you know it's like it just we're going to look at the last 10 years and we're going to change our mind based on what happened over the last 10 years but i think that the longer i do this the longer i think that really the name of the game is is surviving to the next period and the way that you achieve survival is by sort of avoiding too much concentration in any single name or any single sector so i i prefer a little bit more uh, d- diversification than than perhaps the most concentrated investors, but I probably tend to be a little bit more concentrated than the most most diversified quants. So I'm, I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too.
2: <laughs> we we all want to do that if we can. Uh, on the issue of sectors, particularly the technology sector, you know, one of the big debates recently has been this whole whole idea of intangibles. You know, if you look at all the assets in the economy, I don't know what the estimates are right now. It's something like fifty percent or more are, are intangible assets now, and you know, a lot of the metrics we're using, obviously mostly price to book, but also price to earnings. Some of the metrics we're using are not accounting for those intangibles at all. And so people say we're just completely missing the value of these new age companies. How do you think about that? I mean, do you think we need to start adjusting our metrics to deal with intangible assets?
1: It's a great question. And it's, it's really, really hard to answer because it's, um, it's hard to separate out. And this is the, this is the perennial problem with investing. It's, it's hard to separate out the cyclical from the secular. And you know what what I mean by that is the cyclical aspect of what has occurred over the last decade has been this growth of uh software as a service and other tech that is delivered online with virtually zero incremental cost of uh, ca- incremental cost of the product, and all of the the cost of the product is in the programmers who who develop one product that is then distributed. Infinitely to, to have many users they can find, and then the way that 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 is treated in the financial statements is that is expensed through salaries, so it's expensed immediately, which depresses um, their returns, whereas if it had been historically if they'd been building something, if they'd been building a factory, that would have been something that would have been capitalized and then amortized over the the useful life of the asset. And the other thing that's going on at the same time is that tech companies tend to have more share based compensation, they tend to pay a material amount of the compensation to their employees as stock or options that turn into stock that could run as much as 15% a year, which is equally not being captured in the financial statements properly. So they have on one hand, the benefit of um, that, you know, that sort of um, makes their earnings look higher than it would otherwise look. But then they're not expensing, so it looks lower than it would otherwise look. To. So there's that the tension between the two. I don't know if that's if that's unique to those particular types of businesses, or whether that's just the way that the rest of the the way that all businesses going. If that's the case, then we need to find a better way of dealing with. As investors, as analysts, we need to find a better way of capturing that value and, and making these businesses comparable on a like for like basis. It may also be that those are just They really are great businesses that once you get in software, you build the software once you lock in a client because it's so hard to transition your business processes away from one of these services that they really do deserve to earn gigantic amounts on, on, on minimal, um, invested capital. So I think it's basically impossible to answer honestly, but it's. It's the, – the answer is somewhere in in between those two sort of extremes that you should be adjusting a little bit but also treating that with a little bit of skepticism that it's that it will persist forever.
2: It's really tough because effectively we're trying to value something that you're not going to ever figure out what the real value is. You know, we had Kai Wu on the podcast and, you know, he's kind of taking the position, you know, you really can't do this with financial statements. He's used machine learning to try to get closer to at least – what the real value of these things are but even he admits you know we, we really can't you know we're not in a position where we can know the value of some someone's brand or someone's technology or something like that it's it's just very very hard to value in the real world
1: well I, you know you should be able to see that i i don't know which magazine fortune or forbes always runs that um you know these are the most valuable brands in the world and they just look at here's the market capitalization and then deduct the assets and they just attribute the remainder to you know the, the intellectual property or the brand value of the business you know those businesses invariably underperform once they're identified because there's also this enormous sort of people are just excited about the business and overpay for the earning potential of that business and so they it's that's pretty well known that all of those businesses once they're selected by whichever magazine it is they go on then to underperform so what they're identifying is overvaluation not sort of a value in the brand itself but having said that you know well, we all know that when we go shopping, we prefer certain brands to others and we prefer certain names to others. Like there's some things that there's no price at which I will pay for the secondary because I prefer the better one. And so there is definitely value in that brand, but it should be reflected in the financial statements. If it's not reflected in the financial statements, then, you know, what are we talking about? So I, it's a, it's a, it's a really hard. It's a really hard thing to answer. I still think that basically Buffett is walking the 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 right line in there where you know he's he is assuming that they will earn these higher returns on invested capital if they have some sort of protection, they can do it in the future. But then he's not really paying for them as if they can do that. He's still waiting until they fall into the cheapest bucket and Apple's a great example. Apple um one of the best businesses in the market and more money than just about anybody else. But Buffett didn't buy it until it got really cheap. It seems to get cheap on about every three years. In 2013, it was cheap. 2016, it was cheap. In 2019, it was cheap. Between maybe uh, iPhone generations and, and Buffett picked it up in 2019 when it got ultimately cheap. So I, I, again, there's no, there's no, there's no really easy answer to it. But I think that that's probably the way to, 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 to say that these are better businesses, but we're going to treat them with some skepticism.
2: This, uh, this idea of a tangible sort of gets at this last question I want to ask you before I hand it back to Justin. And it's this idea of evolving investment process over time. You know, they say that this time is different are the most dangerous words in investing, but, you know, this time is never different, can also be dangerous. And so like, as we're running value strategies in the real world, you know, we want to have our core strategy that we run over the long term, but also sometimes things change and we have to rethink what we're doing. And I'm, I'm just wondering how you think about that process. And you've been managing money in the real world for a while now, and how do you think about you know tweaking your strategy over time and you know judging when things are really different and and things are not different how do you think about that as you build your strategy
1: it's 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 probably one of the most important things and also one of the most dangerous things you one of the ways to guarantee that you underperform is move to what has just worked because that is always the thing that has sort of um Something that's just worked is something that will just probably not work for a period of time. That's one of the dangers of backtesting that you back test up to this point and you find something that's worked. So we found that with quantitative uh value is a great example. We wrote that in 2012, which is probably the peak of the what came out in 2012, probably the peak of the value run to that point. And um and then value's gone into this ten year you know, period where it hasn't worked and in there. We looked at the magic formula versus the acquirer's multiple and the magic formula has that quality metric in it, that return on invested capital. And we said, you know, the, the outperformance is vast for just using the value metric, whereas probably that's narrowed quite substantially over the last decade. Having said that though, if you are, if you're a price to book investor price to book, it was a great strategy until about 20 years ago, 20 years is a you know, that's a career in the investment market, in, in the markets. And if you, if you're a price to book investor now, there probably aren't any left. They're probably, you can look at the indexes. They just, they're not, they're not identifying undervalued stocks. They're, they're identifying, you know, they're, it's making sector bets and it's, uh, and it's delivering some sort of um, heavy industry tilt to your business. So I think that this is, and I, I know we're going to discuss this a little bit. But this is one of the ideas that I've thought about in, in writing my new book is how do you how do you transition without doing that thing where you're just buying the thing that has just worked. And I think that there's got to be some iterative process to it that you have to if I had been doing this in the past, what would have happened? Would I have had these very long periods of underperformance? Yes, then I'd expect to have a, a long period of underperformance now. I think you have to understand what generates the returns in in the return stream. Is it is it that cyclical function of sometimes some sectors come into popularity, some sectors come into favor, some are out of favor, or is it this idea that the 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 metric itself is is slowly deteriorating because there's this transition into a uh, an intellectual property heavy or or more intellectual property making up the value than the hard assets? We're price the books looking for the hard assets all the time, and it's ignoring all of the intellectual property, which is generating returns. It's a very, very tough question to answer, but it really is the only question that needs to be answered in it. And I'm I'm sort of trying to iterate. You can see in the portfolios that I manage, there are companies that we've held since inception. Um, And it's stuff like, you know, Hewitt Packard, the printer business, not the enterprise business, which has been quite a good which has been quite a good business to own because it's been well managed. They've used the undervaluation and the cash flows in what's probably a declining business to buy back the stock. So the stock has performed quite well. And so I think that that's probably the way that I will follow it. I I, I try to iterate, I'm trying to buy companies that are reasonably well managed and taking advantage of the undervaluation. And I think that, um, I hope that that is ultimately the thing that works.
2: It's, it's interesting because you would think as quants, you know, we might have an advantage here, but I don't know if you read Corey Hofstein's paper, Factor Fimble Winter but he kind of took this idea and he said, all right, how long of a period would we need statistically to say the price to book is dead? And that period was longer than any of our investment lifetimes. So even as quants, we're going to have to make that discretionary decision. You know, if we wait on the data and the price to book actually is dead, we're going to have horrendous performance for a really long period of time. So even as quants, we have to try to make this discretionary decision, and it's really hard to do.
1: Yeah, that was, that was a great paper, and I, I'm glad you brought it up. I was thinking about it too, but I, I couldn't remember the period of time. I think you said 80 years. It would require 80 years of additional data, 80 years of, of price-to-book underperformance to sort of rule it out as a metric. So you really have to be um, using something beyond the back testing. You have to be thinking about it. Uh, thinking about the reasons why it's working, which is dangerously close to sort of becoming discretionary and doing that thing where you're just chasing the thing that has worked. If you looked at what's worked in the market, you'd conclude that what you really wanted to own was software as a service, almost under all circumstances where it might get to that point where it's so overvalued that it's impossible for it to deliver reasonable market returns going forward, which is back to the traditional idea of value, buying things that are cheap and ignoring the stuff that's overvalued.
0: Jack, you just took the, the wind out of my sails on the next question I wanted to ask him. But Toby, if we if if we have you on the podcast ten years from now in episode two thousand one hundred and three, uh, <laughs> and value still hasn't um, outperformed, or the, the the spreads are still you know really wide between value and growth, like when when we look back on that, if that's actually the case. What do you think would have happened there?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So the 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 the, the way that we underperform is that, that well, one, one, this is the thing that keeps me awake at night. This is the thing that I really do worry about. Is, is Mark Andreessen right that software is indeed eating the world? And, and if software eats the world, what does that mean? It means that all of the value in the value chain migrates to the software layer. And so like, you know, historically you might've done a roll up by going and buy. you'd find some fragmented industry, you know, so, um, Wayne Huizenga, when he did it with, um, movie rental with blockbuster, it was a fragmented industry with all of these mom and pop, um, video tape renters. And you would go in and you'd rent your tape and he just went and bought up all of those, those businesses. If now it's a software type world is it something like open table where open table didn't go and roll up a whole lot of restaurants they just offered this point of sale solution for the restaurants themselves and this this booking solution and then they took 15% of the value of the table which it turns out is the entire value that accrued to those restaurants and so they were able to roll up an entire industry without going and spending any money on buying individual restaurants they just went and found the the, the most valuable layer of the industry and took all of that. And I think that's what software, that's what software does. They find a way to extract, you know, there's a, through the value chain of the industry, they find the part that is the fattest and they extract the value at that level, leaving really no value for the rest of the industry. And I, I wonder a little bit if that is why Google and Microsoft are so valuable and so big and everything else in the S and P 500 is small relative to those two businesses. The crazy thing is to look at how big those businesses are relative to other businesses. So Microsoft, Google, Amazon, they're they're sort of in the range of being one to two plus trillion dollar businesses. And if you go and look at the airlines, an airline is a sort of $50 billion proposition. I own Domino's pizza. It's like a $15 billion proposition. Like these are, Google could go and buy Domino's pizza to fill its cafeterias you know and and it would be it would be uh, a tiny it, would, it would, nobody would notice it would be a tiny little blip in the amount of money that they earn so i wonder if they become so big they extract so much value from every other business that it is the case that they should be very very expensive and occupying a gigantic part of the s&p 500 and then as a value investor i'm going and buying all the things that don't earn really don't earn any more than just their cost of capital and so they will always be is also rants that's that, that's how the scenario that you have described happens in in that period of time
0: one of the things that i sort of think about and it, it sort of relates to this but it also relates to inflation and interest rates like if you think about when value really started to underperform it was in this period of uh falling and you know ultra historically low rates and one of the, I guess, outcomes of the Fed doing that is, you know, we, we didn't really ever have since, well, since 08, 09, we really haven't had, uh, we've had maybe many recessions or there, we, I don't think we, well, we had the COVID recession, but that was like a one month or, you know, whatever it was, a market crash and it was like a three month recession. So I'm wondering, there's two things that I, I'd like to ask you. One is I wonder if... In terms of that pre-mortem question I just asked you, you know, if we have less recessions in the future, then maybe you could make the argument that value wouldn't perform as well because you tend to get really good performance out of value coming out of those recessions and those early, uh, early bull markets. So that's sort of one thing. The other thing is um, with inflation high and rates increasing, how do you sort of? Think about that. Like I, I tend to be on the side of higher rates. Interest rates means a higher discount rate. It means lower valuations for growth companies, which are valued way out of the future. And it should make, you know, the cash flows and value companies more attractive. Does your research, do you agree with that? And did Because some people say, no, that's not true. So I'm trying to get at really what what is true here. <laughs>
1: It does seem to be that there is some relationship between inflation, interest rates, and value performing. And it just depends on who you ask. So if you ask Meb Faber, and I think the way that you've described it too is the way that I understand it to be the case, that it's sort of a slightly a duration bet that if you think about the way that interest rates work and you think the way that bonds trade in the market, the 30-year bond is much more sensitive to interest rates because so much of the, the flows are back end dated and the the small moves in the interest rates have a much greater impact on on those valuations. So if you think of a tech stock as like a very long bond with most of the, the cash flows being backdated, if you shift the interest rates down, they will moon. They go they go up they go up a lot, much more than the interest rates move. Whereas value companies tend to be front end loaded cash flows, like HPQ might be a good example. We don't know whether people are going to need printers in 10 or 20 years time, but right now, HP is making a lot of money and it's buying back a lot of stock. And so uh, it's more of a shorter term bond. And so it's less sensitive to to those interest rates. So when interest rates drop, it doesn't make much difference because it's all front end interest rates. And there's also a statistical relationship between inflation. As inflation goes up, value has historically tended to do a little bit better. The problem with that is there are guys out there like Cliff Asness who's very smart and he's good at teasing out relationships between interest rates and value performance. And he says that all of the different ways that the smartest guys at AQR thought about the relationship between value and interest rates. So looking at the looking at the term structure of, of the interest rates going, going back from today to whatever the longest stated one is, 30 years, um, looking at the shift of the curve, looking at Cash deposit rates or any other definitions of interest rates, they're not able to find a relationship between the two. And Cliff's they, they, there was a paper that came out a year or two ago from AQR, and then Cliff's written about it again recently, where he says he's unable to find that relationship. Uh it's it's a it's a really tough question because. The I think that the uh, the argument for it is so compelling. I can't see how it's otherwise, but it's just difficult to show it in the data. And it does seem too, having said that, that since interest rates have ticked up, value has started working again. And may, but maybe it's inflation. Maybe it's inflation running so hot means that heavier assets um, are worth more. But then Buffett says, uh, you don't want to be in those heavy industries because while the while you hold them, hold those heavy assets. It looks, it probably does flatter your returns. But when you go to re-rebuy those assets, or you maintain those assets, or grow, you're spending more again, and that consumes a lot of the the value that you thought you had accrued. You now have to reinvest it in the business, and it turns out that in uh, in high inflationary periods, you want those low capital intensive businesses because they don't require so much reinvestment to deliver those returns. I'm I've tied myself in a pretzel trying to figure out the correct answer to that and I don't know and having having done all of that I sort of fall back on the idea that you can overcomplicate this stuff and the simplest way to think about it is just to take a step back and do what all of the, the great value investors have said that you should do which is to look at the the returns that you're earning now on you know you the business is going to earn a certain return The price that you pay on that business implies a certain return for you as an investor. If you pay less than the invested capital in that business for that return stream, you'll earn more than that business does if you pay. So if you pay, you know, you're paying at a discount to book, you'll earn more than the business does on its own returns. But over time, your returns will converge to that return on equity. If you overpay for that return on equity over time, your You you will earn less than the business's return on equity, but over time, your returns will converge to the business's return on equity if you hold it for long enough. So that's the, the, the thought that I always have in my mind is that you're always converging towards return on equity, but you can be earning more or less over the holding period that you have. And so that argues, I think, a little bit for finding sufficiently good returns on equity so that the business justifies its capital invested in it, but paying a sufficient discount to that so that you are, as an investor, earning more than the returns on equity, which is I think what value does. I think why value has been so successful. And I think if you do that, you should still do very well as an investor over long periods of time. So that's basically what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find sufficiently good returns on equity, and then I'm trying to pay a discount that gives me a margin of safety and I should out earn them Remains to be seen if it's possible to do or not, though.
0: Just uh, before we wrap up here, two two more questions. We're kind of going to move off value here, and hopefully you'll come back and we'll continue to talk about value investing in the future. Um, but for now, um, one thing we wanted to end with here is now that you've been running your your funds for a couple of years now, what's one of the biggest lessons that you think you've you've learned by having your own ETF on the market and running it?
1: One is that um the the patience required for a strategy to work is that I, I really do think that the secret to investment is just p- being patient like i i think through 99 through, through 2019 and 2020 um, and i was doing podcasts every week through this period of time i i think that you can see in those podcasts that i was trying to be open to the idea that the world had changed but also relying on you know i'm a student of the markets i like the history of the markets and i'm a student of the way that different strategies perform at different times and what different strategies do and it's entirely normal for good strategies to underperform for extended periods of time and i think that when you have a lot of weight of history and research that you should just remain patient and stick to what has worked because the world does tend to mean revert that that does seem to be the case that the world does have this mean reverting aspect to it. And having said that, you need to be a little bit Bayesian too. You need to be adding the new information and weighting it appropriately, updating your model a little bit in a Bayesian way so that you're you're not doing that thing where you're in a price-to-book terrible strategy that just will continue to underperform it and doesn't have enough uh, sort of his statistical, historic support in the, into the future. So it's patience and, and, and being a little bit Bayesian. So that's what I'm trying to do. I, I do think that value will come back. I think that the reasons for its underperformance are explainable in the spread. And I think that that spread will close eventually. I don't know if there's any reason why it would not, other than that software does in fact eat the world and, and we all should be in software and ignore everything else. But even in that scenario... If the heavy stuff gets too cheap, then you need to be in the heavy stuff. And if the, if the, if the software gets too expensive, then you can't earn market returns and that's just, that's sort of an iron law of, of, of investing.
0: By the way, our biggest lesson, is, uh, for writing an ETF is don't shut it down after like, a, after like a 50% drawdown.
1: <laughs> well, it's tough. It's, I mean, it's hard. Like the it's, it's funny re you know, reading about all of the, the reasons why you know, all of the behavioral um, reasons why people do things and saying, I'd never do that. And then living through it is an entirely different thing. When you're living through it, the reasons why everybody did everything in the past become immediately clear because it's so hard to sort of resist it. But um, I think you guys got unlucky. Like I think it's a good strategy. And I I, I do think that Validia will do very well because I think that the the IP, the intellectual horsepower in there is very good.
0: How's your new book coming along? What what is the new, what is the new, what, if you have it? do you have a title?
1: I do it's called, uh, yeah, I can give it to you. So this this, this is basically all I have. No, that's not true. I've been, I've, I've, what I find in writing is that there's, you have to produce sort of three to five X, what is actually usable. And so I write, you know, 300,000 words to produce a hundred thousand usable words. So the title of it is invincible. Um. Sun Tzu, Warren Buffett and the, uh, the history of grand strategy, something like that. I think that's where I've sort of settled because I think that there's this idea and I I think that there are these parallels between Sun Tzu, who was this Chinese philosopher, warrior writing in sort of 500 BC, ancient China, describing, uh, what he thought the way that Kings and sovereigns should manage their realms basically his argument was avoid battle at all costs do everything that you can to to make sure that you're not in conflict and you sort of admitting defeat a little bit when you enter into these conflicts because now you've got the risk that you you lose the conflict and i think that buffett has when i look at buffett's strategy he would say the same thing that basically you shouldn't be don't don't engage in conflict try and win these battles without ever or, or win the engagement without actually ever fighting. But then the key to it really is also this idea of um, harmony or nobility, which is like behaving in an upright, honest, generous, honourable way so that you're regarded as someone who does that and then continuing to do that. Because I think that that's what Buffett has done. You. When, you, when you read what he writes, he says they look for character in there. They look for, you know, honourable managers of those businesses will treat them like partners and then they in turn try to do that for their own shareholders and i i I used to think that that was just sort of the, the thing that they said to make them appear sort of to have to be morally right to have this sort of moral rectitude and the longer i think about it the more i think that it is a great way of solving the principal agent problem which is the key problem in investment how do you get the manager the fund manager or the the CEO of the business to run it in the interests of the, the shareholders or the investors. And I think that, that aspiring to those things and talking about those things and behaving as if it is the case, eventually makes that the case. So I think that what, what they have solved is the principal agent problem by requiring those things. And I think Sun Tzu figured it out two and a half thousand years ago. And then I've looked at various different philosophers between Sun Tzu and Buffett. And I think that there are a lot of people who've been saying the same thing and it's sort of hiding out there in plain sight. So that's sort of the, that's, that's the, the book, but it's hard to kind of articulate that in any way that doesn't make me sound like a raving lunatic. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to get to that point where it's well supported by evidence.
0: Sounds interesting to me, um, but yeah, I would wish you uh, all the best. You know, writing a book is tons of work and um you know a lot of effort so but i'm sure it'll be great so to we'll put links to all your different sites your podcast um in the show notes and but is there anything specific you'd like to call out here in terms of where people can go to find out more
1: or... uh the best the best place to go is probably acquiresmultiple.com um all the blog posts are up on that and links to all the books and um the two funds are zig is the ticket for the mid cap, large cap, and deep is the ticket for my small and micro fund. Uh, and they both sort of follow the strategy that I've articulated today.
0: Thank you, Toby. We appreciate you uh, spending time on us there. Good stuff.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me, fellas. I, I love chatting to you guys. Uh, I wish you guys the best of luck too.
0: Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.